Well, as we look at this passage, um, one of the questions it throws up for us is, who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? And I want to try to um, say to you this morning that I don't think there's any more important question that we could be facing, actually. Who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? Now, I know as I say that, you might be thinking, well, actually, that, that might not be a particularly important question to you. I'm conscious that many people, if you were to go even just up into Islington and you were to ask the average person under the age of 16 who is Jesus, they're as likely to name a Manchester City footballer who's currently out of favor with the team than they are the historical figure of the Son of God. And I'm also conscious, of course, I'm speaking this morning um, in the light of the announcement that we had yesterday evening from the government. Um, as we enter into this week on Thursday, another four weeks of lockdown. And so in terms of pressing concerns, you might be thinking, this is not something I've got time for right now. But what I want to suggest is that to understand who Jesus is and to understand how you should respond to him isn't just something for people who are particularly religious. I mean, even if you just want to understand the way that our world is, Jesus literally divides history in two. The book that's written about him is the most read book that there has ever been in history. More people today worship Jesus and more people throughout history have worshipped Jesus as God than any other figure. More people follow him today than any movement across the face of the earth, whether political or religious. And so even if you just want to understand and make sense of the world you live in, you've got to start with him because the world revolves around him. But actually, if you're saying, well, look, that's fine, but another day because of the pressing concerns we're faced with at the moment of the lockdown, I wonder if you noticed in this passage how for a brief moment, when Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was able to do something remarkable. He was able to walk on water. He was able to rise above the wind and the waves and the storms he was facing. And just to look at that for a moment, I want to suggest to you that if you get who Jesus is, And if you respond to him rightly with the faith that is being shown in this passage, then for you, no matter the storms you're facing right now, he will give you that ability as you trust in him to rise above them. Not necessarily change the circumstances, but cope with the circumstances you're facing. And so therefore, I come back to the question, who is Jesus and how should you respond to him? Wherever you're coming this morning, whatever weighs on your heart, there is no more important question. So let's look at this passage together. We're going to look at the provision of the Son of God, the power of the Son of God, and then we're going to look at faith in the Son of God. And those first two points, the provision of the Son of God and the power of the Son of God, we're going to move slightly quicker through those because I really want to give us a good time to spend on faith in the Son of God and how we should respond to Him, and as we respond rightly, what difference that makes to our lives. So come with me to our passage as we look, first of all, at the provision of the Son of God. Now, if you're joining us in Matthew's Gospel or if you've not been with us before, we've been saying that Matthew's Gospel is structured around five key blocks of teaching. And so we've just had in chapter 13 with the parables, Jesus' third block of teaching. The first block is the Sermon on the Mount. The second block is in chapter 10, his teaching on mission. And then the third block is on about understanding people's responses to the kingdom of God and to Jesus as the king of the kingdom of God. And so from chapters 14 to 17, this whole section is a kind of working out of the parables, and particularly the parable of the soil, often called the parable of the sower, but really as we saw last week through Mark's exposition, it's a parable of four different types of soils. 
And so this section that we're in at the moment is all about who Jesus is and how we respond to him and what those responses show about what's going on in someone's heart. And so as we come to that, we find um, Jesus in verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. Notice, first of all, Jesus' compassion. He tries to withdraw, probably because he's tired. He's exhausted from his ministry. But the crowds follow, and what a crowd. We're told at the end in verse 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So let's take a conservative guess, 10,000 people in this crowd. I know it's often known as the feeding of the 5,000, but that's just the way in a patriarchal society they counted households was by the male figures. So it's more likely 10 to 15,000 or so people in this crowd. And Jesus has compassion on them. That is, he sees them in need, and he wants to do something about it. Initially, it's their physical needs, and so he heals them. But then, in a Middle Eastern society, even though they were withdrawn away from everywhere, since Jesus is the one who's been teaching them, it would have been expected that a village or a town nearby would would have to host these people and would feed them. Um, If you've spent any time in Africa, you'll know that if you host a conference, then the village or the town that's hosting the conference is expected to provide hospitality. And so Jesus has got a problem here, 10 to 15,000 people. That's quite a lot of hospitality. And he says to the disciples that they should feed them. You give them something to eat, verse 16. I mean, how are the disciples going to do that? But once again, Jesus never asks anyone to do something if he himself is not able to back it up. And so we get the remarkable instant that's recalled in all four four of the gospel accounts, because it's so important, of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Look at verse 18. Bring them here to me, he said, taking the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He tells the people to sit down on the grass. He looks up to heaven as he breaks the loaves and blesses the bread and then they're able to miraculously feed the people. And let's not believe any kind of liberal scholarship nonsense about this is just, well, if everyone shares, then you're somehow able to make the food multiply in a practical sense. Verse 21, sorry, verse 20 doesn't leave that open because at the end, when they were all eaten and were satisfied, they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is clearly miraculous. Now, forgive the awful pun, but Matthew does intend us to follow the breadcrumbs and work out what's going on here. And he gives us three important pieces of detail that would resonate with his original audience who were all Jews. Matthew was written as a gospel primarily for the Jews, and they know their Old Testament. And the first one is that Jesus, or that Matthew refers twice to what is recorded in verse 13 as a solitary place. Um, and then referred to later as a desolate place. And literally in the original, it's the same word. It means a desert. So the setting is in a desert, and that's repeated to us twice. That's the first breadcrumb. The second thing is that when Jesus breaks the loaves, we're told in verse 19 that he looked up to heaven. That's an important clue for us as well. So the desert, looking up to heaven. And the third breadcrumb is there in verse 20, 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. For any Jew who's reading this, the resonances come loud and clear. To a time in the Exodus when God had called his people out of Egypt, they'd crossed the Red Sea and they found themselves in a desert with no food. Notice the setting. And in that setting, 
God miraculously provided from heaven. Notice Jesus looks up to heaven to to bless the bread. From heaven, bread was provided, manna, miraculous provision from God. And this was done to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Exodus. So Matthew is clearly drawing the links for us. In other words, this isn't just Jesus being a remarkable person who has some kind of miraculous gift. No, what Matthew is wanting to show to us is saying, do you remember in the Exodus when God fed miraculously his people with bread from heaven in a desert, fed the 12 tribes of Israel? Do you see now Jesus Christ in a desert, miraculously providing food from heaven for the 12 tribes? That is, his gathered people now. In other words, join the link. Draw up. Just as God provided and was the providing God in the Old Testament for his people, never letting them go hungry, always providing for them, always looking after them, always having compassion and meeting their needs, so now Jesus is the Son of God, the same God who Old Testament or New Testament has compassion on his people, the same God who miraculously provides for his people. Who is this miraculous provider? Who is this compassionate giver? Jesus, the Son of God, the same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New Testament. And then we move straight on from that, from the provision of the Son of God to our second point, the power of the Son of God. And notice the way that as Matthew tells this story, that he sets it up as being such a mighty storm. Come with me to verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted or literally tormented by the waves because the wind was against it. So Jesus spent the whole night in prayer You know, from sunset through to near sunrise, as we're told. Shortly before dawn, verse 25 is when this happens. And the disciples, as Jesus has been laboring in prayer, they've been laboring against a storm. Now, bear in mind, there are 12 of them. Some of them are experienced fishermen. 12 men who are experienced fishermen in a boat. That's a big boat. And they've been rowing hard and working against the storm on a lake they knew well but they've made no progress. They've been tormented by the wind and the waves all night. Can you imagine that? Eight or nine hours of rowing against a storm and making no progress. Everything about this indicates the power of the storm, the power of the wind, the power of the waves. And then look at what happens, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. I mean, he's having a Sunday stroll. The wind and the waves have battered this boat, have tormented this boat, but Jesus just strides across the waves. And when the disciples, verse 26, saw him, they think he's a ghost, and they cry out in fear. Verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus here shows remarkable power over the wind and the waves. And I think the fear that the disciples show in verse 26 may well be because initially they're trying to figure out what it is and to see obviously a human figure that far out in a lake in the midst of a storm would make them think of a ghost. But I also think the fear is partly just because of the sheer power. I mean, after all, if they've been afraid of the storm, now when Jesus just rides across the storm as if it's nothing, does that not indicate his sheer power? 
I don't know if you've ever stood on a, a platform, for example, and you've been talking to someone when the train, a massive train has kind of shot by, and suddenly you feel it shake you to the core. Or if you've been in a small dinghy when a ferry is nearby. Or I remember once I was um, uh, in a valley um, up in the mountains and an avalanche came down the other side of the valley and it shook the ground and just the sheer size and power of it suddenly made me feel fear. Fear is a very normal human response to something or someone of great power. And the disciples see here Jesus' power. But it's not just they see his power. Notice what he says. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. The phrase Jesus uses there, it is I, literally is I am. Again, the readers would get the reference and the disciples would get the reference because what happens in verse 33 and 32 is remarkable. As the wind dies down, verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Try to keep in mind these are Orthodox Jews, People often try to say, well, these people back then, they were just quite gullible and we're more skeptical today. We may be more skeptical today, but to believe that God became man was literally an offense that was punishable by death for Orthodox Jews. We see that in the New Testament with how Saul responds to Christians claiming that Jesus is God. So to worship, verse 33, a human figure either shows that Jesus is God or it's a profound act of blasphemy that incurs the death penalty. I mean, I might have spoken in a number of evangelistic events over the years, but I've never yet had anyone come up to me and say, we should impose the death penalty on you for claiming that Jesus is the Son of God. But that was the stakes for the Jewish, for the Jewish believers. So why do they think he's God? Well, because what he says, verse 27, it is I, I am. In the Exodus, that is God's self-revealed name for who he claims to be. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the everlasting God, the one who has no beginning, the one who has no end. I have always been here. I will always be here. I am. I am the pulsing heart at the center of the universe. I am power itself incarnate. I am God. You know, often people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Some people even claim that it was a kind of later church invention. A man called Gerard Massey wrote a book called The Historical Jesus and the Mythical Christ, and his contention was this, that there was a remarkable man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a great teacher. He might have even you know, done a few um, parlor tricks. And then the church took him, and then around about the third or fourth century, they deified him and made him into the mythical Christ and added all these miraculous things that supposedly he did. Well, Jesus doesn't actually say the words ever, I am God, And the reason is this. In the first century, everyone believed in God of some sort. And so if you said, I am God, it would raise the question, are you the Roman gods? Are you the Greek gods? Are you the pagan gods? I mean, bear in mind, Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar had both claimed that they were divine, and Caesar Augustus had only just preceded Jesus' life. So to claim you were divine in some sense, in a general sense, was not actually that remarkable at the time. But Jesus doesn't just claim he's generally God. He says, you know the God of the Old Testament? You know the one who did the Exodus? You know the one who defeated all the gods of Egypt? You know the one who provided for his people in the desert? You know the God who is I am who I am, that God, the one that there is no likeness to, no other gods compared to, I am him. That's what Jesus says. 
So he does claim divinity, which is why they worship him as divinity. The provision of the Son of God and the power of the Son of God. So let's now look in our remaining time at how we should respond to the Son of God. This incident with Peter coming out of the boat and walking on water is only recorded in Matthew's gospel. And I love Peter because he often speaks up before he's even thought through the implications, hasn't he? You know, verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. You, you can't help wondering whether Peter actually expected that response. You know, maybe he was just like he so often is, full of bravado, I'll come to you, come. But initially, Peter got down out of the boat, verse 29, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Just think of that experience for a moment. Peter, eyes fixed on Jesus, does the most remarkable thing. He's able to rise above the raging storm, the wind and the waves. But then verse 30 happens. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Verse 30 is interesting. Notice the detail. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. Now, that's strange because, let's be honest, the wind is not new information for Peter, is it? He's been laboring for at least eight hours against this wind. He knows there's a wind. That's the whole point. He knows there's a storm. So it's not new information to Peter. So what is it that happens in verse 30? Well, you know, sometimes if you have a, a child who's scared because they're up on a, a height, for example, if they're in a high ropes course or if they're walking across a rickety bridge, a loving and caring patient will, uh, sorry, patient, parent, sometimes it feels like that, a loving and caring parent will go up to the child and they'll say, look at me, don't look down, eyes on me, eyes on me, look on me, just keep focused on me. Now, why do parents say that to help a child who's scared? Because it's not new information, is it, that they're suddenly they could fall? No, it's about the orientation of their heart. Trust me. Look to me now. Stay focused on me. As long as you're here, we're okay. i get you through it. I'll get you through it. This is what Jesus is doing with Peter. Look to me. Come to me, Peter, he says. And Peter looks to Jesus. And Peter knows about the storm. He knows there's wind and waves. But for that moment, he's fixed on Jesus. But then the orientation of his heart changes. Suddenly he sees the wind. Suddenly he sees the waves, which he's known about all before. But his heart is now dominated by those. And in that moment, fear grips him rather than faith. It's not new information that he's getting. It's about the orientation of his heart. This is what this whole section is about. It's what the parable of the soils is about. In the parable of the soils, remember last week, we saw that it's not different information about Jesus that determines people's reactions. The same seed is sown. It's about the orientation of a person's heart that receives that seed in very different ways. Ask yourself, what determines the difference in the parable of the sower between the third seed and the fourth seed? The third seed is strangled by the weeds and the worries and the anxieties of this world. The fourth seed produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times over and perseveres. Both seeds face waves, sorry, face weeds. Both seeds face difficult and trying circumstances. One is strangled. One thrives. You know this in your own experience. Two Christians can face the same tragic circumstance in their lives. For one, it drives them away from God. For another, it drives them to God. What's the difference? 
It's where you're looking. It's Jesus saying to you, look to me. Eyes on me. Keep looking at me. I know at the moment that many of us are scared, worried about this new announcement. The first lockdown was hard enough. We're thinking, how are we going to cope with the second lockdown? Four weeks? I mean, we only just started to feel like we were getting, coming together as a community. Mark and I were aware of great anxiety in the church family, great anxiety in the community after the back of the first lockdown, strains on relationships, jobs with many people struggling financially, hurt, loss, grief, and just as we seem to be coming out of it, another one? The wind and the waves, to use the vernacular of the passage, might feel pretty big right now for you. Maybe just the announcement last night just induced fear in you. What Jesus is saying to you in this moment, don't look at the wind and the waves. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. And I can hear you saying, well, look, that sounds nice in theory, but how do I know that he's going to be there for me? How do I know that he's going to be able to sustain me? Well, because he's the God who provides, remember. He has compassion. That is, he sees his people in need. He always meets the needs. And that doesn't mean he'll take you out of the circumstances, but it does mean he'll give you the gift of his presence in the midst of your circumstances. And he's powerful. He can do anything. There's nothing he lacks. So if he loves you enough to do anything for you, and he's powerful enough that he can do anything for you, then he says, eyes on me. Well, you say, how, how do I know? How can I be sure of that? Well, because if I can put it like this, Jesus took the ultimate storm of God's judgment for you to prove to you that he will do anything for you. This storm in the boat is nothing in comparison to the storm of God's judgment. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took it all for you, for me, so that we will know with certainty that he loves you. He did that for all the ways we don't trust in him, and we look to our circumstances, and we're ruled by our circumstances. But he said, I'll take it all. I'll take the storm of God's judgment so that you can know how precious you are to me, so that you can know that I will always provide for you, and I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's a um, Netflix documentary that came out recently called When They See Us. It talks about the Central Park five, as it were, who are five young African-American men, young men, well, actually boys, who were wrongfully convicted of the rape of a female white jogger in Central Park in 1989. And watching the Netflix series just runs through the horrendous injustice they faced in being wrongfully convicted. There's a scene towards the end of the series where one of the men, completely innocent like all the other four, is in jail, and his mother faithfully visits him. Every month she comes to visit him. But there's a point when he can bear it no longer. And he turns around to her one day and he says, it feels like everyone in the world hates me. I just can't go on anymore. And she says this to him. She says, I know, but I love you enough to make up for everybody. All I do all day is love you. Don't ever think you're alone. Don't ever think you're walking through this alone. You cry, I cry. You mad, I'm mad. You scared, I'm scared. You free, I'm free. You and me always. I mean, that's the love of a mother for a son, isn't it? Can I ask you, do you think Jesus loves you any less than that? You cry, he says, I cry. You mad? I'm mad with you. You scared? I'm right there beside you. 
you're free, I'm celebrating with you. He would do anything for you. And so what does he say to you in the midst of your circumstances? Friend, eyes on me. Don't look to the wind and the waves. Here's the application. Every time you're tempted to look at your circumstances, the wind and the waves you're facing, and you're intimidated by them, and you feel, I can't go on, whatever your worries are, family members and their health, employment and where your next meal is going to come from, circumstances, notice Jesus never trivializes those. They are real wind and waves. They are powerful. He doesn't trivialize them, but he says, don't get transfixed by them. Eyes on me. For every one look you're tempted to look at your circumstances, take three looks at Jesus. Know that he sees you in your need. Know that he cares for you in your need. Know that he can do anything as the Son of God to meet your needs. He's there with you in the midst of the storm. Look at him. And as I close, I just want to reassure you with a wonderful little detail that Matthew gives us. Verse 32 when they climbed, that is Jesus and Peter, into the boat, the wind died down. It's borderline to being too trite, but when Jesus climbs into the boat, suddenly the wind dies down. In other words, if Jesus is with you in the boat of your life, he will sustain you. He will navigate you through anything. I don't know what the next four weeks will hold. I can't promise that I do. I do know this. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, he will sustain you through the midst of it. He doesn't promise to change the circumstances, but he always promises sufficient grace to get you through the circumstances you'll face. So what should you do? Don't look to the wind and the waves. They'll just cause fear. Jesus says, eyes on me. Look to me, trust in me. I'll sustain you. Let me leave this in a prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank and praise you that Jesus, as the divine Son of God, the one who provides for his people, the one who has power to do anything as God, is the one who says to us, eyes on me, look to me. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be anxious about anything that we face, but you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we keep our eyes fixed on him, trusting in him, and that as we do that, we might be liberated from fear and we might instead be able to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.